at some point in every Christian runner's career, likely during high school or college, one of two verses from the Bible will probably be their favorite verse. The first one goes, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall rise up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be made weary. They shall walk and not faint. That comes from Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 31. Good morrow, everybody. My name is Ben Laboot, and welcome to Stories of Symmetry, a podcast dedicated to revealing beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. Take a walk with me back to college football's rivalry weekend, 2009. Nearly 91,000 fans gathered at the Swamp in Gainesville to watch the Florida vs. Florida State game. For the first 11 games of the season, UF quarterback Tim Tebow has written a different Bible verse on his eye black. Isaiah 40:31, which I read to you just moments ago, was one of those verses. But on Rivalry Weekend, November 28, 2009, he stepped onto the field wearing Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, the other favorite verse of runners everywhere. It reads, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When I saw Tebow's eye black that weekend, I, like so many others who didn't know that verse, looked it up, and was inspired. I myself am a runner, and while I have never worn a Bible verse on a t-shirt, nor have I ever been the athletic equivalent to Tim Tebow, I cannot fail to recognize how the verse captures the spirits of athletes and the faithful alike. The poetry, the profound words, and the vibrant imagery the writer to the Hebrew used to encourage the early Jewish Christians is breathtaking. And I, like so many others, tucked that verse away, never to read what came before or after it. I appreciated the beauty, but completely missed the meaning. A verse of the New Testament is like a first century soundbite. We find a pithy sentiment and then isolate and latch onto it. But there is always a context and a message surrounding the one or two sentences that we adore so greatly. The verse today, Hebrews 12, one through two, may begin with verse one, but it's verse one of chapter 12, and that is based on chapter 11. Listen again, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. It says, we also. So who is in chapter 11 for us to be also? 
Hebrews chapter 11, which of course is a continuation of Hebrews chapter 10, is often called the Hall of Faith. It is like the Hall of Fame for heroes of the Bible. It begins, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For, by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made by the things that are seen. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commended him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. By faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, Isaac invoked a future blessing. By faith, Jacob. By faith, Joseph. By faith, Moses. By faith, Rahab. By faith, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, who, through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The verse challenges us that in our walk with the divine, we are to be like those heroes of the Bible who had unparalleled faith in God. Too many people are watching, and too much is at stake to quit early or give up. But be advised that it won't go quickly. The race is long, and you will need endurance like the faithful of long ago. Along this journey, you cannot afford to be dragged down by sin and all the other things that pull you away from God. Shed those distractions and fix your gaze on Jesus, who is not only the source of your faith, but who perfects it, completes it, and brings it to fruition. And when the going gets difficult, you can remember how Jesus endured until the very end, which for him was a shameful death on a cross. But Jesus endured that dishonor because it was for a joyful purpose. And now, even now, he sits at the throne of God in heaven. Of all the men and women of great faith who are mentioned in Hebrews 11, to me, Joseph stands out the most. Chapter 11, verse 22 says, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the Exodus and gave instructions concerning his bones. And, sure enough, since we are working backwards in the Bible, if you flip on over to the first book of the Old Testament, Bereshit, or Genesis, 
and turn to the last paragraph of that book, which is in chapter 50, it says, And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was placed in a sarcophagus in Egypt. That is how the book of Genesis ends, with Joseph's dying request to have his body brought to the promised land when the exodus happens. Now, this may or may not sound like an act of faith to you, but if you know the story of Joseph, then you're probably raising an eyebrow right now. Joseph did so much and lived such a singular life, so why is his mentioning the yet-to-happen exodus from his deathbed the event recorded in the Hall of Faith? I'd wager that many people who are familiar with the life of Joseph don't even know he did that, and I don't remember that scene in VeggieTales' Ballad of Little Joe. So whether you're familiar with the man or not, let's do a quick character study and talk about the life of Joseph. And before jumping in, I should point out that this is the Joseph of the Old Testament, not the Joseph of the New Testament who was the father of Jesus and husband of Mary. The story of Old Testament Joseph began with his great-grandfather, Abraham. Abraham had a son, Isaac, who had a son, Jacob, who was also called Israel, who had 12 sons and one daughter. Joseph was one of those 12 sons. He was the second youngest. He was also a cheeky lad and favored by his father, a combination that yielded arrogance too great for his brothers to endure. So one day, they grabbed Joseph in the fields and decided to kill him. Yes, murder their annoying little brother. But compunction guilted one of the brothers, who convinced the others not to kill Joseph, but merely to sell him into slavery. Accordingly, Joseph was sold into slavery and eventually became the property of an Egyptian officer named Potiphar. While engaged in that service, Joseph made such a positive impression on his master that he was appointed head of the household. But much to his ill fortune, Joseph also made quite the positive impression on Potiphar's wife, who tried to seduce him into bed. Joseph had enough integrity to refuse her, yet how was he repaid? By the mistress accusing him of attempted rape. He was subsequently imprisoned, but again, he made such a positive impression on the master of the prison that he was placed in charge of the other inmates. Some years later, through a strange series of events and a mutual connection, the pharaoh of Egypt took notice of Joseph and, glossing over the details, appointed Joseph as the viceroy of Egypt, the second in command for the entire country, subordinate only to the pharaoh himself. Later on, Joseph was forewarned by God about a future famine. In response, he created an initiative to stockpile grain. It was so successful that the country had food for the entirety of the famine's seven years of scarcity. Now, Joseph was in Egypt, but meanwhile, back in the land of Canaan, where he was born, his family was suffering from the same famine. 
so the brothers of Joseph journeyed to Egypt to purchase grain. On the trip, the brothers and Joseph met for the first time since they beat him and sold him into slavery. From his position of power, Joseph could have acted however he wanted toward his brothers. But instead of pursue revenge, Joseph forgave them, reconciled the family, and brought the entirety of the family to Egypt to escape the famine and live in the prosperity that he himself had created. Wow, what a life Joseph lived, and that was skipping over much of it. What's amusing to me, though, is that, like so many people, even I completely skip over the part of his life that is mentioned in the Hall of Faith. It seems small in comparison to the rest of his life. The climax of the story happened when he forgave his brothers. He sat all-powerful and on the seat of judgment, and instead of punishing those who did him wrong, he forgave. That action was a foreshadowing of Jesus, when one even greater than Joseph would sit on the seat of judgment and offer forgiveness and reconciliation. Yet it was not that foreshadowing that the author of Hebrews recorded. That storyteller recorded the foreshadowing of the Exodus. That deathbed exhortation, though it occurred well after the denouement of Joseph's life, that is what was recorded in the Hall of Faith, as if to say that the biggest moment of Joseph's life happened right at the very end, and that all the other things, the honesty in his labor and business, the integrity with Potiphar's wife, the salvation of a country, the forgiving of his brothers, all those other things, come in second to his dying words, and, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the Exodus and gave instructions concerning his bones. By faith. I think that's what it is, because the other things that Joseph did, though amazing and demonstrative of an outstanding character, albeit arrogant in his youth, those things did not require faith necessarily. No faith is needed to say no to a temptress. Courage, fortitude, and a backbone, yes. But faith? Not really. It does not even take faith to forgive one's abusers. On the other hand, it would probably require faith to stand before the Pharaoh and interpret dreams, as Joseph did. And faith, again, to stockpile grain during a time of plenty, as he did. But perhaps even those acts of faith pale when compared to making mention of the Exodus while on his deathbed. To understand why, we must journey even farther back in the Bible to Joseph's great-great-grandfather, Terah. Terah, it is not clear, was perhaps the first chosen by God to leave the familiar and, by faith, journey to an unknown land of abundance. But Terah never saw that place. If it was God who called him from the land of Ur, he only made it halfway, stopping in the land of Haran. From there, God called Abraham, saying, Go from your country and your family and your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. Abraham went, and God led him to the promised land, the country of Canaan. There, 
Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat twelve sons, one of whom was Joseph. Those sons, their father Jacob, and the rest of the household were forced out of the promised land when God sent a famine. And to their salvation, Joseph welcomed them to Egypt and settled them in the land of Goshen. Usually, when we talk about the Bible and mention Egypt, it is a sort of hellish place in which the people of Israel are brutally enslaved and in need of manumission. This is not so in the time of Joseph. Then, Egypt was a place of luxury and good things. It was in Egypt that the people of Israel found salvation, and Joseph was the viceroy of the country, no less. The time of Joseph was over 400 years before Moses was called to liberate God's people. So what does it mean that the writer of the Hebrews reminded them that, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the Exodus and gave instructions concerning his bones? By that mention of the distant Exodus, Joseph said that Egypt is great, but it isn't home. Home is elsewhere. Home is in a land called Canaan, a place for which Abraham, by faith, left his father and homeland and followed the call of God. Yes, Egypt saved us, and therein I found life, but it isn't it. Egypt is amazing, but it isn't the fulfillment of God's promise. Egypt is good, but Egypt is temporary. My home is elsewhere. I am in Egypt right now, but I won't be forever, because the Lord has promised me a better thing. If we stay too long in Egypt, we will miss out on what God has given us, and worse, will forget about it completely. Therefore, have faith in God, have faith in his promise, and have faith that what God has is better. Egypt is great, but we have to leave and return again to the land of Canaan, the promised land. I live my life in Egypt. It is where I grew up. It is where my friends are. Egypt is even where my house is, but my home that is elsewhere. The Lord beckons. The promised land is calling, and I must go. Take me with you when you leave this place and return home. By faith, Joseph at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus and gave instructions concerning his bones. You see, Joseph made preparations for the famine, and Joseph forgave his brothers. But the real highlight of his time on earth, the reason why we remember him as faithful and teach about him at Sunday school, is not because of his character. It is because Joseph looked at Egypt, as great as it was, and instead chose what God had promised. In effect, he said, Egypt is great, don't get me wrong, but God has established a home for us, and I want to be there. There, the promised land, 
That's where I belong. And if I don't get there in this lifetime, I want you to bring my body there. When you leave here, which you surely will, take me with you. Take my bones home. Many hundreds of years after the death of Joseph, when the promised land was finally back in his family's possession, the book of Joshua tells us, As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them in Shechem. Finally, looking to the example of Joseph and others, let us remember that we also are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Therefore, let us lay aside every hindrance, including sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that has been set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand, the throne of God. Thank you for joining Stories of Symmetry. We hope that what you hear on this show helps you find beauty, purpose, and all manner of good things. If that's true for you, then don't hesitate to share Stories of Symmetry. Telling people about this podcast is by far the best way you can help us grow and reach more people. Perhaps you'll even consider bringing a friend to listen with you when the next episode is released two weeks from today. Of course, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to Stories of Symmetry and give us a like. Finally, you can always make a donation to the show by visiting storiesofsymmetry.com give. We'll see you again in two weeks, and until then, go with God, go in peace.